They did. Nobody said that. That was testimony. But Senator, now wait a minute. It's not up to you and I to look at the documents that are in the newspaper. It's not up to you to tell me what they said. I'm repeating facts. And I am sick and tired of you interrupting me. I don't interrupt you. And stop interrupting me. Let's move. I don't want you to be sick and tired. Let's move. Welcome to Spin Class, and we're talking politics here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, and welcome, I'm your host, Michael Fragan, here to tell you that that was Senator Alphonse D'Amato, former senator, and the former congressman, Anthony Weiner, on New York One's Wise Guys, talking about the Garner verdict, I guess the non-verdict, the non-no-bill indictment, as well as Ferguson, the Ferguson case. In fact, I think they were talking more specifically about Ferguson. This was pre-Eric Garner, pre-Staten Island. And what I wanted to bring out from that clip is that you have two people in the public domain, former members of Congress, who can't even agree on the basic facts of the case, so much so that they engaged in some pretty entertaining antics on live TV, or maybe it was tape TV, but uh, quite entertaining, and they could not be separated even by the very strenuous entreaties of one Errol Lewis. So they went at it. Nobody can really agree on the facts here, and now we have another case of the grand jury not returning an indictment in Staten Island on Eric Garner. I have to say, I heard somebody yesterday, local person, person here in New York who I respect, somebody from our community, say, well, what do you want? Eric Garner was a criminal. He was doing a criminal act. You know, why should he be the, why should he be the guy? And it, it, that should, well, he got what he deserved. I, I guess that's, uh, that's what he said. And I'm so troubled by that. And maybe what I'm going to say is going to upset some people, but you got to differentiate these cases, folks. Okay, in St. Louis, you had a clear case. Actually, not clear, but you definitely had a case as shown by evidence, by physical evidence, there was a physical altercation before the deadly act took place between the victim, the ultimate victim, Michael Brown, and the officer. And that happened. That was clear. There was definitely a struggle. But in Staten Island, I don't see any justification whatsoever for having used what amounted to, in the end, deadly force against this guy. I mean, come on. What was he actually doing? He was selling loose cigarettes. Yes, I guess it's a crime. I guess he shouldn't be doing it. I guess it's wrong. But did it take six officers to really subdue this guy? Could they have just said, okay, you're going to come with us? You're not going to come with us? Okay, then we're going to bring out more officers to get you. But do you have to take him down in this manner? It doesn't seem, from my point of view, from looking at it, that nothing... Now, there was no question that the officer did not intend to kill Eric Garner. There's no question, I think, that the officer in... St. Louis did intend to use deadly force. He said so. He said he would use deadly force in order to save his own life. He said he had to. But here in Staten Island, he did not intend to use deadly force. But should any force have been necessary? Was the police officer's life really in danger? But I will say, this whole thing has really been, I think... And I'm not going to say it's taken out of proportion because we have – there is a problem. There's a perception problem. But in the way that it's come to demonize the police officers who every day put their lives on the line, it's not as if – I think that you'd be very hard-pressed to find an officer who goes out there and says, you know what, let me kill somebody today. I mean that's – I think that's just preposterous. And you have people like Charles Barron and other people – who are out there saying, no, we don't accept any excuses. We don't accept any any type of explanations. Any, There's no such thing as an accident. You take your gun out as a police officer, you're immediately going to be found at fault for any shooting you make. And I think I want to bring you to this clip of Joe Scarborough on Morning Joe, because I think he makes an excellent point about the way the media has portrayed this. 
But we are doing such a grave disservice to police officers in this country by pushing a narrative that they're just going around looking to shoot and kill black people. Joe, I'm and somebody has to tell me. Somebody needs to tell me why Michael Brown has been chosen as the face of black oppression. How can this guy be the face of black oppression? How can this guy who had just robbed a candy store and was out there and scuffled with the police officer be the place, the face of oppression? Every case has its own details. Every case has its own minutia. Every case, and these details are important under the law. The only way you're going to go ahead and make a case against somebody for a crime, for a criminal act, is if you follow the law. But yet we want to lump everything together. We want to make everything as if these are cases of oppression. Do we have a problem? Certainly we have a problem. We have a problem with perception. If people are out there saying that just by virtue of the color of their skin, they're vulnerable. That's wrong. And, of course, there are people in our community, our own community, who are kind of saying, well, the guy was a criminal, so therefore, what, he deserves to be dead? I heard this. I heard this, and I think it's shocking. We should all take a little bit of pause in thinking of the consequences of of cases like what's going on in St. Louis like what happened in Cleveland, where a young boy had a toy gun, quote-unquote. In fact, it wasn't. Where And was shot dead. And in Staten Island, where a man was not shot dead, but died in the hands of the police. And it's troubling. And it should be troubling to all of us. And it's also troubling when people want to go ahead and demonize a police officer. And say that they have a, and don't acknowledge the fact that they have a very dangerous job. And their job hinges on split second decisions that literally are life and death decisions for them, for potential victims, for others, the victims of crime. So who's to blame here? Now we have to think about how did this whole mess start? And I think what really is going on is the sensationalism and the need and the craving of the media for a story. They swoop down. They have to come in. They haven't investigated. They're relying on people who are making any statements because they're not under oath. So they run up and they're running to the camera and say, this happened, this happened. He was shot in the back. This is what happened. This is what happened. And once an investigation happens and once they've drilled down a little bit more and gotten the facts, not everything is as it seems. So as a society, we have a lot to deal with because we have this divide between the way the police are perceived in some communities versus other communities. We have a difference in perception and the way crime is perceived in some communities versus other communities. There is a problem here on both sides about how to perceive these issues. On the other hand, we have to acknowledge when certain things happen, when certain ills of society manifest themselves, we have to acknowledge them. We have to acknowledge that they exist, and we have to deal with them. We can't just take the approach that it's black and white, meaning, and I mean that as a double entendre, I mean that this is how it is and this is how it happened. That's never actually the way it happened. Nobody can have any type of certainty that this is this is exactly the type of person. This is the type of person that that cop was. This is the type of person that the victim was. This is the type of person that there were no circumstances surrounding that. That's impossible. And I think that in this frenzy that the media has to go ahead and send everybody full battle mode, send every reporter like you're covering the war in Afghanistan and that the everybody should be on deck in the desire to do that, done the country a big disservice and not waiting to see what the actual facts are. So 
Let's talk politics. We are sponsored by Beckerman, BeckermanPR.com. Tell your story with Beckerman. And I'm proud to introduce our first guest coming on Spin Class for the very first time, Rabbi Chaim David Zwiebel, popularly known as David Zwiebel of Agudath Israel of America, the executive vice president and former corporate attorney turned up more uh, pro bono type attorney. A public interest attorney, but a man who speaks authoritatively and a man of great integrity on behalf of Orthodox Jews, not just here in New York, not just nationally, but internationally. Rabbi Zubel, welcome to Spin Class. Well, thank you so much, Michael. I appreciate that introduction, and sometimes I think like that, in fact, I am working pro bono. Well, that's, uh, I, I didn't mean that in the true pro bono sense of the word. I should have said public interest, but yes, I understand where you're coming from. We've all had that uh, here and there. So... I want to pose, I want to have a discussion with you about something that I think is going on and that this perception that Orthodox Jews or the Orthodox Jewish community, number one, uh, can't be good, we can't be good citizens. Number two, our elected officials are, are only out looking out for the Orthodox community. And I mean Orthodox elected officials, not elected officials who are uh, representing the Orthodox community. And I guess number three is that, well, when we when we do when there is wrongdoing, and I don't even mean wrongdoing, when there's something out there that other members of the public don't like about the Orthodox Jewish community, you tar Orthodox Jews everywhere with that brush. So I know there's a lot, there's a big question in there. And what I'm referring to really is this report on the East Ramapo School District, mm -hmm. which I find so horribly offensive that there's, there's been wrongdoing so many school districts in New York State. There's been malfeasance. There's been stealing. There's been outright corruption. And here you have a district that has a lot of challenges, but yet somehow they came down on the school district with a report like no other and said, well, they need adult supervision. And to me, these people are elected. They're elected by the public. They're elected by their constituents. Do they really need adult supervision? Well, I think it's a uh, it's a very important issue that uh, that you raise, and I think that this report raises. And I agree with you that uh, the report is very troubling in in, in a number of aspects. Uh, most significantly, um, the report seems to say, or very clearly says, that because the majority of the school board in East Ramapo um, are persons who come from the private school community, presumably. Uh, that, that's, a, that's another way of saying um, that these are all people who, uh, who are Orthodox Jews, which is the case. The large majority of the school, the school board are Orthodox Jews. Um, they have limited understanding of public school, public school students and their families. Uh, and as a, result, uh, as a result, directly because of that, uh, public school needs... Uh, have been sacrificed in favor of uh, in favor of private school needs. In favor favoritism has been shown to the private schools, meaning the yeshivas, uh, which is another way of saying that almost by definition, uh, if you are an Orthodox Jew, you are not fit to carry out the legal responsibilities that uh, are incumbent upon school board members, and that is a, a very troubling. I think aside from being. Uh, offensive in a certain way, but also extremely troubling in the sense that uh, it's, uh, it plays on some of the um, most uh, pernicious stereotypes uh, that we as a community have had to face. Um, as I see it, uh, in reading this report and in understanding what's going on in East Ramapo, uh, the real source of the problem, uh, of, of most of the problems in the school district, has been the failure of Albany at the state level to provide proper funding for the school district. Uh, this is a uniquely or somewhat uniquely uh, constructed uh, school district in the sense that the overwhelming majority of the students who attend schools are, in fact, attending yeshivas. Uh, the, the state aid formula uh, that provides funding for this school district is no different than the state aid formula that would provide funding for school districts that reflect uh, you know the, the the more typical breakdown of 85% public school, 15% non-public school, uh, and 
And uh, in fact, this is one of the poorest school districts in the entire state, but is treated by Albany as if it were one of the wealthiest school districts in the entire state, and therefore is receiving far less in terms of state aid uh, than uh, than than, uh, than they should be getting. And that's really the reason that the school district and the school board um, uh, had to cut back on a lot of the, of the public school programs. I should mention that you know, there's an assumption at the heart of this report, uh, which is, I think, legally inaccurate. The assumption is that the, f- the school board's first uh, obligation is to the public schools within the district and only afterwards to worry about the, the, the private schools or the non-public schools or the yeshivas in this case. I think that it's very clear that the law in New York mandates, it requires that certain programs be made available to children in all schools, including non-public schools. And those children in non-public schools have the very same claim on those services as do the children in the public school. As a matter of law, if the school board had chosen to, instead of cutting back on the optional public school programs that had been funded until then, uh, instead had cut back on the mandated programs that that were they were required to provide for the non-public school students, they would have been acting illegally. So um, we're dealing with a situation over here where uh, the uh, uh, the report, and, and I must say that I happen to know the author of the report, um, Hank Greenberg, and I've had nothing but uh, an excellent relationship with him over the years, uh, and I think very highly of him as an individual. But I think that he's missing a very significant uh, factor over here. Uh, the, the real source of the problem is Albany needs to recognize that this school district is uniquely constructed uh, and and needs to be funded in a different way than other school districts so that a school board can discharge its legal obligations to the to both the public and the non-public school community simultaneously. So you bring up you bring up an excellent point here, and the point you're making is that this is a guy Hank Greenberg, who's been around Albany. He understands the way things. Are. He's a, he's a man who has investigated issues before Fort Albany. The people at the state education department, the chancellor, these are people who know their business. They have a fundamental understanding of the law and the points that you appropriately and eloquently brought up as far as what's mandated and what's optional. And yet they produce a report that really has goes ahead and says, well, we didn't find any wrongdoing, but it's very slanted against the board. Additionally, if you watch the webcast of the region's meeting, there were more than one, I know at least one, members of the regions calling for criminal charges against the the members of the Ramapo School Board, even though the report said that there was no wrongdoing here, which leads me to believe that is this a witch hunt? I mean, what are the what is what's missing here? What is the what is the officialdom? What are the people in Albany not getting about about this about Orthodox Jews that they that they want to rush to judgment in this way? It's a it's a terrific question, uh, and 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 I was thinking as I was reading the report where um, uh, Mr. Greenberg says that because the board is is comprised primarily of persons from the private school community, they simply cannot understand the needs of the public school students, and therefore will slant their policies to favor private schools over the public schools. Well, then you know the board of regents is. Uh, is comprised entirely of people who come from public school backgrounds uh, and query whether they understand private school students and their families, yeshiva students and their families, and if they don't, uh, is their culture and is their perspective uh, limited and not sufficient to be able to service the children in our schools? You know, that, so that's a question that can be turned around and posed directly to the Board of Regents themselves. It's a very slippery slope to say that people can only represent their own people. I think that that's a very dangerous precedent to be in. Now, we're going to say the same thing. Catholics can only represent Catholics and Protestants can only represent Protestants and then Latinos. Can, it's, it's terrible. What kind of – but yet we seem to reserve – I shouldn't say we, clearly not us, but people in Albany, people who have with, spent years and years in the public sector seem to only – only reserve this for members of our community. 
Well, you know, uh, Michael, I think that, that Mr. Greenberg does make a good point, which is important for us to keep in mind, and that is that there is a poisoned atmosphere uh, in East Ramapo right now that prevails in other parts of the state and other parts of the country and other parts of the world as well, but there is right now a poisoned atmosphere in East Ramapo. No trust whatsoever uh, between uh, the public school community and the yeshiva community, uh, the school board is not trusted by, uh, by by those who send their children to public schools, uh, and this is this is an area where um, community relations does make a difference and should and should be emphasized, and that's part of what Mr. Greenberg called for, and I happen to support that. I think that it is important for there to be a strengthening of outreach uh, to the. Uh, between the the, the uh, yeshiva community and the public school community, I think the school board needs to do a much better job in public relations. Um, uh, the president of the school board, uh, Yehuda Weissmandel, is an extremely intelligent and devoted public servant. If you ask me, I think he's a terrific person, um, but he's not skilled necessarily because he has no background in public relations. Uh, and he says so himself in a letter that he wrote to Governor Cuomo, which, by the way, was a brilliant letter, a brilliant response. Yes, it was to to Mr. Greenberg's report, and and I think um, explains very clearly that uh, that the rep- the report is flawed in, in in a number of important ways. Uh, but in his letter to the governor, he says, "Look, we as we we assumed responsibilities uh, for the school district over here by running for the school board." Because we cared about the children in in, in East Ramapo, because uh, we saw that it was a mess and that we felt that we might contribute something. Um, we think we we do the best job we possibly can, uh, but we're not PR people. We don't have a, a background or uh, or or a skill in public relations. Uh, and uh, if if that's what's necessary to start repairing some of the atmospherics. Uh, that are so poisonous in in East Ramapo, uh, you know that's something that 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 needs to be done. And um, well, you anticipated my question as to say what can be done, and I think certainly from what you're saying is that that is a precursor to any type of any type of solution. Uh, unfortunately, I, it seems that that has been you know, that's something that's long overdue, but mm-hmm. certainly it's never too late. To do that, but let let me just ask, as far as because because as I mentioned, your extensive background, uh, an illustrious background, as in the legal, uh, in in the legal realm, is this idea that of putting a monitor in place, which will require legislation because it doesn't it doesn't exist in New York as opposed to in New Jersey, and there is a, a monitor, from what I understand, in Lakewood, New Jersey. But to put a monitor in place in East Ramapo to I get to oversee or have veto power over the decisions of the duly elected school board uh, is that something that is that something I, clearly it's not being welcomed because as we saw from the letter from the school board is that something that has a strong legal basis that something can be challenged uh, is that something that will be challenged well. Uh, I can't speak to the question from a constitutional perspective because I haven't done that analysis, but I can certainly say that from a political science perspective, um, the concept of a school board in New York, at least, is that the voters in a particular school district are given an opportunity to choose uh, the persons who will run the school system in that district uh, to impose upon uh, the uh, persons who have been selected through the democratic process, through a vote uh, across the school district, to impose upon them an outside monitor who not only has the opportunity to make recommendations and suggestions, which would be one thing, but actually to uh, veto decisions that are made by the school district simply on the basis of that monitor's own um, sense of what's right and what's wrong, uh, in a very real way that robs uh, voting power uh, from from those who elected the school board to to make those decisions. So I think it really is a very serious question. There may be uh, constitutional issues that, uh, that 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 would raise, and I'm sure that the school district uh, and the school board will look into that question. But just from a simple uh, perspective of we live in a democratic society where uh, our representatives are chosen through the ballot uh, and uh, 
those representatives have been given certain responsibilities and authority pursuant to law to take that away uh, disempowers and disenfranchises the voters. So it is a very serious issue. Okay, and last question for you, Rabbi Zwiebel. How does the Orthodox community, particularly in the public realm, counter that perception that we're only out for ourselves? Well, uh, as we say, Sheila Gedola Shalta, this is a very uh, important <laughs> and difficult question, which we've been grappling with uh, for the longest time because there are stereotypes out there. Um, but in fact, uh, I think if we look at the uh, people who have been elected from our community and serve in uh, state government or in city government uh, or, or other places in, on, school, on school boards and so on, uh, we find people who are very dedicated public servants, people who have uh, done wonderful things not only for the Orthodox community but beyond as well. And, you know, I think about my good friend, uh, State Senator Simplefelder, who uh, you know, is very ostentatiously Orthodox, uh, and at the same time is somebody who is exceedingly uh, well-respected uh, and well-liked, uh, not only by his colleagues, but his constituents and his constituents of all stripes. Uh, I can say the same about many of the other uh, state legislators and city legis legislators um, uh, who service our community, but also service their broader constituencies that they were elected to serve. Uh, so without question, when people go into the polit political realm from our world, uh, the spotlight is upon them, the microscope is upon them, uh, and they have to um, they have to be capable and uh, have integrity and and uh, serve the community uh, uh, in, in its full range and the full spectrum of of all the different constituencies that are part of the community. Uh, and when that happens, I think that uh, you know that that begins to dispel some of the uh, the ill will and the and the irrational um, suspicions uh, that people may have about about our public servants. Beyond our public servants, of course, every single one of us in our interactions with the world, when we're part of the larger society, we go to work every day and we interact with our colleagues, or maybe from 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 the uh, the Gentile population or from the non-observant Jewish population. Uh, we're under a microscope there too, and every one of us is an ambassador for Hashem and for His Torah. Uh, and for the Orthodox community. So uh, I think that if we all uh, remain conscious of that um, special obligation that rests upon our shoulders, uh, what we call the Kiddush Hashem imperative, um, that consciousness will bring us to a better place and to a, uh, to a situation where uh, the community is represented, uh, is, is respected, uh, and, is, um, and, and is able to uh, accomplish what it needs to ac to accomplish on its own behalf, while at the same time um, making the world a better place all around us. Rabbi David Zwiebel, Executive Vice President of the Good of Israel of America, thanks for joining us here on this very important topic, and we'll hope to have you again in the future. That's very kind of you, Michael. It was a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you. Thank you. This is Spin Class, and we're talking politics here. We might be talking a little bit... Uh, a little bit of moralization as well, but uh, we are certainly talking politics with my next guest, Zach Fink, once again joining us here. And uh, Zach is wrote a long form, I think for a political writer, as a long form piece on what I'll call the bromance between, I love that word, bromance between Chris Christie and Andrew Cuomo. We saw it manifesting itself during this past campaign. Zach's going to go a little bit deeper into it as a reporter who's covered both New York and New Jersey politics has that unique perspective. Zach, thanks for joining us here once again. Michael, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. So, number one is you got two guys, unlikely partners, unlikely friends, both very aggressive politicians, yet they seem to have a non-aggression pact with each other. And, potentially, as they both angle towards 2016, they might be eyeing a little bit of friendly competition. So let's start with what was, and if you can take our audience back on a little walk through how this special friendship came about, and then we could talk going forward. Absolutely. You know, obviously these guys have ties between them that are literal in terms of the bridges and the tunnels of the Port Authority that connect the two states. 
there are two from two different parties which seem to come at things from a different way, but both of them have some similarities which were obvious right away in terms of embracing a kind of centrist pragmatism over politics view of the world. They both came into office at relatively the same time, Christie first in 2010 and Cuomo a year later in 2011, when we were just coming out of the Great Recession. In Christie's case, really, we were still in it. Um, so they had to make some tough decisions. They both cracked down on unions, atypical for a Democrat, but Cuomo did it. Uh, Christie actually cited Cuomo in his budget address a year later, saying that Governor Cuomo's taking, you know, some policy cues from me, which was right on the money. I mean, the property tax cap is a good example in the suburban communities. I mean, that was a Christie policy initiative. Um, so they have some ties with that in terms of their approach. We know that they are friendly, that they talk a lot. But I think, Michael, what really sort of brought this into public view was the Bridgegate scandal, uh, in which the two governors, you know, which oversee the Port Authority, respectively, had this major scandal brewing. And what wound up happening was, you know, ultimately a federal criminal investigation. And while that tends to be focused on the Jersey side, there's no question that there could be some culpability on the New York side, just in terms of the silence that we heard from Governor Cuomo throughout that process. So let's just talk for a second about the number one. Do they like each other? Would you say they personally like each other? Or it's just a marriage of convenience that they're tied by the bridges. I, no, I think you're right. I mean, I, I think they they have a close personal relationship. I, you know, close meaning you know, do, do they hang out every weekend? No, I don't think so necessarily. I think that they chat frequently. I think they have direct lines of communication. My understanding is they, they've had dinner together at least once or twice. Um, so they, they are friendly. They, you know, they have a very symbiotic relationship. And, and that was really borne out, I think, um, in terms of what we saw this past fall during the campaign where Governor Cuomo is up for re-election. And Chris Christie, who is the head of the Republican Governors Association, it is his job to get Republican governors elected in the United States of America. Not only did he not do a thing for Rob Astorino, but he did three joint press conferences with Cuomo in the fall. I mean, that, that's just strange to, to any observer. And a number of aides I spoke to, to both governors, uh, said as much to me. Well, that seems to be a Christie MO. If you recall, when Romney, Obama, going down the home stretch, Christie had no problem doing a very, very public embrace, literally, of the president. I think you're right, and I think Christie has this... Um, brand that he's that he sort of sculpted for himself of, you know, I'm about what's best for New Jersey and our needs, and, and I put partisanship aside. They're both like that. They both have this sort of attitude that they're not going to get bogged down by partisan politics, and that further binds them together, I think. Um, so Christie, in this instance, you know, I, I would argue that this circumstance is a little bit different in this campaign because he also then publicly tanked Rob Astorino. Uh, I think it was in July of this past year, where he basically called him a lost cause. I mean, that's strange. It's one thing for the Republican governors, you know, the head of the Republican Governors Association, to not lift a finger to help Ron Astorino. You could even argue, okay, fine, he was doing joint appearances with uh, Governor Cuomo because it was expedient for both sides. But for him to publicly comment on Astorino's chances and put him down in the way that he did is just downright bizarre. And, you know, he didn't have to say a word. He could have kept his mouth shut. And let's also remember that the same week he said that in July, two days later, the New York Times comes out with this bombshell story about the Moreland Commission. So if there was ever a week for the head of the Republican Governor Association not to say something negative about the Republican candidate for governor in New York State, it was that week. Yes. I want to get a quick comment in before I ask the specific question is that uh, yesterday there was a panel on the election and Michael Waller, who was Christie's campaign, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Rob Astorino's campaign manager, said that those comments from Chris Christie were the death knell for the campaign even back then because it basically made it impossible for them to raise any money. But now that you talked about Moreland, now you throw that out of the bag, perhaps you can look at it as the two of them both share another distinction as having federal prosecutors coming after them. Now, maybe there are different degrees in which the federal prosecutors, the U.S. attorneys, are coming after them, but they both have that. And they also have kind of promised a lot of transparency in their governments, but they haven't delivered on that. 
and maybe those are both functions of each, of each other, but they do share these these items, and you know that can have the effect of shaping one's attitude. Uh, certainly, you know people kind of uh, hunker down with other people who are in similar similarly situated. Yeah, no, no doubt about it, and I think that just sort of you know further enhances the the bonds between them. I, I mean, I think to a certain extent the die was cast. I think that their bond really was cemented over over the uh, Bridgegate scandal, where uh, Cuomo basically allowed the Jersey side to handle it. He said as much uh, and really didn't say much about it at all publicly. He allowed Christie the opportunity. Remember, Christie was up for re-election that same year. Nothing was said about it until Christie was safely re-elected. Um, there was some back and forth between Astorino and Christie. Astorino went out and met Christie at the nomination to the head of the Republican Governors Association in November out in Arizona. Apparently, the meeting didn't go so well, or Astorino spoke about it publicly, which Christie really did not appreciate. So there was a lot going on here, and, and, and you know, a lot of ties you know, going back and forth between them. And we should also point out, and this is not just my reporting in the piece, but the New York Times did a story about this you know, earlier this year, that Cuomo was not eager to face Rob Astorino. He really did not want Astorino as his opponent because Astorino was, on paper at least, a very strong candidate. He'd won twice in a blue county, which was Westchester. Um, so he was formidable. And Cuomo you know, was, was so busy trying to uh, avoid a major challenge on his right that in some ways he kind of forgot to shore up his left, which is why he ended up with a, a primary opponent who did as well as she did. So 2016, of course, looms for both of them, and they both have their challenges as far as being boxed out by other people in the party, with Andrew Cuomo, clearly it's Hillary Clinton, with Chris Christie, there's Jeb Bush, there are others out there, Mitt Romney is now making noises yet again that he's going to run for a third time. So they're both kind of looking for their opening uh, to go. Does their does their collegial... Uh, attitude kind of uh, continue as they go forward and look at 2016. Can either of them afford to wait? Let's say not 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 pull the trigger. Wait till 2020. Uh, how does that pretend for either their career? And how does that affect their dynamic? And one thing I think you pointed out very importantly that that probably would be totally lost to anybody even casually follows politics. That apparently they share political consultants or at least a firm. Of political consultants, they do. There are a lot of ties there with Mercury, uh, which is for for Democrats and Republicans to share consultants. That's unusual. It is unusual, and 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 it goes back to the point just about the two of them being above partisan politics, and and ultimately it's about you know protecting power and 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 having the same you know that crossover with the donors as well, which is very interesting. You know, Ken Langone being a, a key one, the founder of Home Depot, but they they really you know the ties in the sort of New York City area. Remember, there's big, big money here, and both of them need that donor base from which to draw. And it just makes sense to to, to keep it bipartisan. You know, if you, if you move too far to one direction or the other, you isolate a number of those big money donors who both of them would absolutely need. In terms of uh, 2016, I mean, I think you said it. I think both of them are kind of locked out in a way. I think you know the Hillary Clinton factor has just made it so that. Uh, Andrew Cuomo is just going to have to wait his turn. That's definitely not going to happen this time around. And some people have speculated that that explains the mass exodus from the Cuomo administration, why so many people are leaving and don't want to work there anymore because it's become painfully obvious he's not getting the nomination anytime soon. And for Chris Christie, you know, I mean, I still think he has a shot. Uh, however, I think as Jeb Bush gets closer to announcing that he's going to run, that's a big, big problem for Chris Christie. I mean, the, the, the Bushes ultimately made Christie's career. George W. Bush appointed him. As the federal prosecutor in Newark uh, back in the early 2000s, and you know his ties with the Bushes go very deep. If he loses that donor base and those supporters and that you know group of Republicans, then, then Christie also is pretty much done for in 2016. Okay, so now let me, after having asked all these questions about why this should be a sensational story and why people should care about whether Christie and Cuomo get along with each other, shouldn't? Shouldn't we be happy that Democrats and Republicans can work together? Isn't that what we want out of government, that once people are elected, they put partisanship aside and that they can actually make things work? Isn't that why Washington isn't working, because Democrats and Republicans can't get it together? Like, why do we care? Why are we upset about this? What is it about what is it when you decided to kind of 
look at this story and look at this unusual friendship or usual, I'll call it a friendship, uh, is that, isn't this something that we'd be looking for? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, I, I don't think it's negative at all. I mean, okay. I think, I think to take it, yeah, I, mean, I think the takeaway on this is that it's fascinating, that it's a really interesting and unique case study. Look, there are some things that are highly questionable, but I think ultimately, you know, our job as journalists and reporters is to shed some light on it, some transparency. Here's what's going on here. People can make their own judgments about whether it's nefarious or whether it's mutually beneficial or whether it ultimately, you know, benefits the taxpayers of both states. I would, I would argue in my personal opinion, that at the end of the day, it makes perfect sense for everybody and that everybody does benefit in a lot of ways. Um, I do think the Bridgegate scandal is, however, a gaping vulnerability. I think there is an instance where we don't know all the facts, and that's a problem. And, you know, okay, there's a federal investigation, and presumably that will get to the bottom of it, although I don't have a ton of faith that it will. But, okay, let's let's hope for the best here. Uh, that, that is one area where, where those ties might have proven to be uh, something that was not necessarily in the public interest, let's say. Okay, so last question, I guess, is about that Bridgegate scandal. There is going to be a report, let's build as an interim report, from the New Jersey legislature, and they have a select committee that's investigating the scandal. It's not going to be, I guess, as exhaustive because they still haven't spoken to certain witnesses who are, and you could probably explain that better. That's going to be released on Monday. Is that going to be another round of negativity, or is that going to be kind of ho-hum as far as Christie is concerned? Because, well, we already talked about all this already. I mean, how much at this point aren't people really exhausted by Bridgegate? Don't they just not want to hear it anymore? I, I think there's some fatigue on that. I also think your point is a good one about what else could possibly come out. I mean, remember, the investigation was stalled. Uh, because of key witnesses they couldn't call, witnesses who were cooperating or subpoenaed from the federal prosecutor, uh, made it so that the New Jersey Select Committee couldn't call them and couldn't interview them. And so, therefore, that really put a kink uh, in what they were able to accomplish. So, you know, Monday's going to be interesting just to see in terms of what they have. I, I think certainly it'll be, there'll be news about it. You know, as long as it's in the news, it's not good for Chris Christie. Um, but, you know, in terms of any gaping revelations, I, you know, I think we would have seen them already. I think if there was some sort of smoking gun from specifically this investigation, it would have been leaked out by the members of that committee already. And do you think that Cuomo, meaning the New York side, gets ensnared in any outcome as far as Bridgegate is concerned? My hunch tells me no. I think there's no question that Pat Foy, his executive director at the Port Authority, is the key to unraveling this thing. Um, whether or not, you know, the prosecutor would go after both governors, even if he found something that maybe didn't shed the best light on Cuomo, my hunch is he would not. My hunch is he is, he is focused on the sort of, sort of Christie side of the ledger, the New Jersey side where the malfeasance really occurred and that he's not terribly consumed with, with, with how do I get Cuomo. You, you, just, you, know, you have to limit these investigations. You can't cast too broad a net because then you just get, you get too bogged down. Zach Fink from New York One News also wrote a story in City and State magazine regarding the unusual love affair, and I'll use it as that, not in a romantic sense, but certainly <laughs> in a convenient sense, between governors... Chris Christie and Andrew Cuomo, both eyeing 2016, and we'll see how that progresses. Certainly, there may be openings for either one of them, or if not both of them, uh, as the political season goes on. Thanks for joining us here on Spin Class. Thanks again, Michael. Appreciate you having me on. This is Spin Class, and we're sponsored by Beckerman, BeckermanPR.com, and I want to welcome to the show for the very first time Mayor Weingarten from does the Israel show here on the Nachum Siegel Network. And uh, I'm sure you've heard out there, we don't uh, we don't only cover politics on this side of the pond, we cover it wherever it is. And Israel is going to start there and kick off their political season. Uh, coming up, culminating in elections that are going to be held on St. Patrick's Day. I could say St. Patrick's Day here on the Nachum Siegel Network. That's okay. Here in the U.S., uh, March 17th, also known as March 17th in the state of Israel, uh, Bibi Netanyahu firing his key members of his cabinet as calling new elections. And right now, at least from the polling, it looks like this will be a good move for the right 
the those on the Likud side, Yisrael Beitenu, the Abayid Yehudi, and uh, on that side of the ledger. Uh, Mayor, welcome to spin class. Thank you very much, Michael. So set the table for the audience here, okay? Early elections, rarely do Israeli governments make it the full term, so this is not unusual. Why would the prime minister at this point, at this juncture, choose to call for these early elections? Um, you're right. It's not unusual. I don't think there's ever been a government that, that uh, had its full term of four years. On the other hand, I think this is uh, the shortest or, or one or second shortest government that um, existed in the history of Israel. So it's somewhere in between a full term and the shortest term. Um, the reason Netanyahu... Uh, I think wants to go to elections is because he wants to reshuffle the deck. And uh, the problem here is that you need to understand <laughs> the Israeli political system, which is, um, it, it, it's, it's, the Daf Yomi is more difficult, but, you know, it comes close. Um, the bottom line is that the, uh, whoever's going to be prime minister has to form a coalition with other parties because you need a majority of 61 seats of the 120 seats in the Knesset. And no party has ever come to that 61 seats, and um, you have to put together enough votes in the Knesset to support your coalition government. And um, right now, Netanyahu is dependent on the, for the coalition on Yair Lapid from the Ashtid Party, who has 19 seats, and the Bait Yehudi, which has 12, and Tipi uh, Livni that has six, and he and Livni and, and Yair Lapid are especially troublesome to him. And he figures if he goes to elections now, the deck will get reshuffled. Yair Lapid with the Yeshatid party will drop dramatically, uh, maybe to nine seats from 19. And um, Tipi Livni's party might disappear totally. And he will get uh, probably together with Yisrael. Uh, elections that we could ran together with Israel Beitenu, uh, Victor Lieberman's party. This time they're running separately, but he feels that he would get more than he has now. He has now 31 seats. And together with the Bayit HaYehudi, which probably will grow, will get more than the 12 that they have now, and his uh, traditional partners, the Haredi world, which it would be Shas and Yadut HaTorah, he can put together a much better coalition than the coalition he has now. I think that's why he wants to do this. It's a gamble. It's a big gamble. So you want to take Yair Lapid, uh, cut him down to size. I think that that... And Sippy Livni. And, si- and Sippy Livni. So, that's right. So let's just look at this in the context of us as Americans looking at this and saying, okay, you know, and, and I'm going to give you a probably not the predominant view in our community, but that's that's fine because I think that's it's good to have that perspective but the predominant view in our community would probably be okay great because we want to make sure that the right is as as strong as it as it could be and that therefore it's a great idea but i look at it and say okay you know we're not we're in a very troublesome situation in the middle east right now there's a lot to deal with israel is in a very shaky situation with regard to the eu there's a lot of issues going on there and the, this is not as friendly a U.S. government as we have known, and that's not going to change, obviously, uh, for another two years. Right. So potentially you're going to create a lot more friction with the neighbors by going to a rightist government, assuming that, that it all it all lines up the way you think it's going to line up. And the polls certainly uh, – the polls, I think, that uh, Channel 10, uh, Channel 2, uh, Vala, I mean, they all seem to bear out the analysis that you just gave us. Uh, so, but if you go with a very rightist government, which is the gamble that he's taking, doesn't that create a lot of issues for, for Netanyahu, who has kind of had Lapid and Tippi Livni to kind of lean on, on the, on the left flank to kind That's of... That's an interesting question. I think that at the end of the day, Netanyahu can play this either way, meaning if he gets uh, a, right, a very strong right-wing government, and, and by the way, Shas and, and Yehudut HaTorah, the Aguda, are not very right-wing. They're much more dovish than people imagine. Correct. Not their electorate, but necessarily, but their leadership is. Now, more, um, more willing to compromise. Much more. Um, so, but let's say he gets a much more right-wing government. He can come to Obama and he can come to Europe and say, hey, 
look, I have no choice. You know, before I had Sipi Livni and Yer Lapid, they would support me if I would, if I would become softer. But uh, now, with the government that I have, I can't, I can't show weakness and I can't, you know, um, concede any, uh, make any concessions because I- I'm going to lose my coalition. You could play it that way. Right. I mean, unfortunately, that only seems to work on the Palestinian side where they say, well, we can't do no. anything because that for the Israeli prime minister, that never seems to work so well. Nothing works on the Israeli side, unfortunately, vis-a-vis Europe and, and so forth. Nothing works. The truth doesn't work. Nothing works. Right. Well, I think and I think that that's a that's a very good point. Now, but Israel now goes into a state of of intense competition. Insanity. Right, insanity. Three months of insanity. Right, because remember, and people should remind themselves, that it's not just the elections in March, but there's also all these party lists that need to be made up. So maybe shed primaries, some light on that. Primaries. Primaries. What we would call, I mean, in Hebrew, they call it primaries. Well, that, that's that's the right word for there it. There you go, right. So, yeah. But uh, the primaries themselves portend to reshuffling even internally. Some of the faces that we see now on the list prominently are not going to be there. I think, uh, you know, you take uh, somebody like Dove Littman, for example, who has been a, become a major fixture as the first American-born... For us, he's the major fixture. Right, correct. And I think not much of a factor in Israel. Absolutely. That, that, that is, I think that that's an important point. He's unlikely to return to the next Knesset well, if you look at The it. fact that he's in this Knesset now is a fluke because he was number 19 on the list and there wasn't one analyst who gave Yeshatid 19 seats in the polls before uh, the previous election. So you're right. But it, it, they don't even have primaries. Yeshatid like uh, Israel Beitenu, Lieberman's party, like Shas, like Yadut HaTorah, don't have, they don't have primaries. There's one person or a small group of people who basically set the list, and that's it. Victor Lieberman sets his list of Israel Beitenu, and it, it puts up and down whoever he wants. Yair Lapid sets the list of Yesh Atid. There's no elections. Um, the only one, we, and Shas would be the same, Yadut HaTorah is the same. Habayit HaYehudi, there you, you will see, and there is a lot of infighting right now. The Naftali Bennett's party, um, there's a fighting between the factions in that party uh, regarding um, whether the, the faction called Tukuma will get um, a, a certain number of seats uh, guaranteed to them in advance, or whether they have, you know, it's all internal stuff. And, uh, but the rest of the parties, another thing also is that they raised the, 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 um, um, level that you need to reach in order to get a seat in the Knesset. So a very small party will just drop out completely. Right. Now, there's discussions with... Let's just take the left for a second. Now, uh, there has been this attempt, uh, certainly through a, a more uh, centrist-looking uh, package in Isaac Herzog uh, on Labor's part to kind of resurrect the party. Certainly that hasn't... To bring it back a little bit uh, stronger right. than it was. That doesn't seem to have been all that successful, at least in polling. Um, the Arab parties are now saying they're going to run on a single list, which is, hasn't happened in the past. So there's some, there's a whole bunch of positioning uh, on the left as well. Right. The, the, the left, on one hand, tried to make some sort of a pact, unwritten pact, to say we're going to band together after the elections and make sure that Netanyahu does not get... Um, get to be prime minister. The truth is, though, that the left has not had a majority in Israel for the longest time. The left in Israel, um, surely the radical left, and the left in general is, is rather non-existent. The Arab parties are the Arab parties, and, and the fear is that if they do finally get together as a result of this, they, they will grow in strength. But, um, for example, the Labour Party and, and Isaac Herzog, he's a He's, he's a nice guy and everything, but he has no charisma. And there's a, another part in the equation that's going to come in by the name of Moshe Kachalon. Ah, I was just going to get to him. Right. Okay. So, so Moshe Kachalon was a minister in Netanyahu's previous government, and he has one claim to fame. He drastically revolutionized the pricing on the cell phone. I mean, big time. And he is a he's Sephardic. And he will run on a platform that says, I understand what it means to try and make it to, you know, to, to um, be a family that's trying to make ends meet. 
And I've proven to you by lowering the, the price of the cell phones that I can do this. I can carry it out. Yes, Atid made promises, but they didn't know how to do it. I know how to do it, and here's my calling card is the phone. But, and all the polls you know, give him a tremendous majority. Not majority, a tremendous number of, uh, of votes. Yeah, it, I, it, I, I've seen yeah. him in around nine Nine seats, or ten, right. Which is... That, that is what, this is the pit that Israelis fall into almost every election. You have uh, a string of parties that were up and are now in the garbage heap of parties. And, it, it, you know, I believe that Yair Lapid will eventually end up that way. His father's party, which was Shinui, ended up that way. Raful Eitan's Tzomet party ended up that way. All these parties in their first election got 15 seats. There was Dash. There was the um, uh, Senior Citizens Party that one year suddenly got out of the blue nine seats. Israelis have some sort of psychological thing where they think that, you know, this guy is going to come and he's going to clean everything out and he's going to make everything work and every, all our problems are going to go away, like some messianic <laughs> concept. And they always fall for it. And it was Kadima, which is basically gone. And, uh, and then it was Yair Lapid. It's always this same concept. And at the end of the day, they're literally all on the garbage heap of parties. And the ones that are still around are the classic Likud and Marach and Mafdal, which is now called by Yehudi, Shas and Yehudut Torah, the Arab parties and, and Meret. So, Kahlon, which side would he on? Is he a left or a right? Uh, he's formerly he is, good, That's but... a good question. He will make every attempt to not let you know <laughs> until after the election. So it's entirely economic populism. In a way, kind in of... General, in general, this election is about that. This election is not about, uh, you know, like pre- many previous elections are about security, about, you know, um, Yudan Shamron, about the peace negotiations. I think most Israelis know already, and the previous elections was also like that. That's why Yeshatid uh, won such a great popularity. It wasn't about that, because most Israelis have given up hope. They, there's no partner, we have no one to talk to, and they've given up hope on that. So that's not, it's just not an issue. They tend right, and they want someone who's going to make the economy better. They want someone who's going to help them make it through the months. They want someone who's going to have concern for the average person. And we talk with Mayor Weingartner of Israel Show of Fame here on the Nachum Siegel Network. And, Mayor, as we close out uh, this week's show, I want to just get a question as far as you, you mentioned the security issue not being the big issue. But there is this, there has been this recent spate of attacks, which, at least from what people here have read, has been a little bit more shocking because there's really been like everyday type of yes. everyday people, not necessarily planned, random attacks. Right. You know, people driving cars, bulldozers, all, and just anything can happen. Right. How much has that dented the Israeli conscience uh, right. as let, far as this election? Right. Let me clarify. When I said it's not about security, it doesn't mean that people aren't concerned about security. It means that people understand that in whatever they vote, it's not going to make a difference security-wise. That, that's what I'm saying, that they, they don't hold out any hope for there being any deal uh, or negotiations or whatever. That's why most of the parties, even in the last election, the Labor Party didn't even mention the, the whole issue of the peace negotiations and so forth. Um, now, your question in general, people, when, you speak, when I speak to people, especially in Yerushalayim, there is tremendous concern. There's concern that, I hate to use the word intifada, I'm going to use it now because everybody uses it, but... Uh, we should call it a war of terror, and we went through one, we went through two, we went through one really bad one, and there is a very tr- big concern that Israel would go through another one. And these are the signs, and there's a lot of tension, um, a lot of tension um, in Israel, and quite frankly, elections will just create more tension. My concern is that it's such a powder keg in Israel right now, and, and the, uh, the populace is so angry about the situation with the Arabs that where you have now elections and politicians who are joining up the crowd, God forbid somebody should get crazy and do something really bad. Mayor Weingarten from our Israel show here on the Nachum Siegel Network, thanks for joining us. And as we go along towards March, we'll hope to have you back. Thank you very much, Michael.
And this is Spin Class. As we close out, just want to talk one second about Hillary Clinton. I Not quite knucklehead of the week, but I think uh, when you want to run as an economic populist on the Democratic side and show your populism bona fides, you shouldn't have stories like this come out. And that is that when you want to get an award, you want to give Hillary Clinton an award. Number one, you have to pay her $300,000. That's what UCLA paid in order to give her an award. Additionally, because this was obtained under a FOIL Act, UCLA being a public school, they showed that her representatives wanted lemon wedges and water on a stage. They wanted a computer scanner and a spread of hummus and crudite in the green room backstage. They also wanted a specific type of pillows, and they wanted the colors of the chairs and the amount of cushions, and there could be extra cushions backstage in order to do that, as well as a teleprompter and two to three downstage scrolling monitors for her to read from. This was all to give a speech and collect an award at a public university, and then they charged people admission in order to come and hear her speak. So I don't know if you really want to identify with the people who are left out of the economic boom, the have-nots, the 99 percenters, $300,000 for a speech, and lemon wedges is a little bit too much to ask for. If you're going to get the $300,000, pay for your own lemon wedges. That's it for us here this Thursday night on Spin Class here on the Nachum Siegel Network.